Chapter Two of Fantomas, by Marcel Alain and Pierre Souvestre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Alan Winteroud. Fantomas, by Marcel Alain and Pierre Souvestre, translated by Cranston Metcalf. Chapter Two, A Tragic Dawn. As his cab turned by the end of the Pont Royal toward the Gare d'Orsay, Monsieur Etienne Rambert looked at his watch and found, as he had anticipated, that he had a good quarter of an hour before the train that he intended to take was due to start. He called a porter and gave him the heavy valise and the bundle of rugs that formed the whole of his hand baggage. "'Where is the office for forwarding luggage, my man?' he inquired. The porter led him through the famous paneled hall of the Gare d'Orsay, and Monsieur Etienne Rambert satisfied himself that his trunks had been properly registered for Verrières, the station at which he had to alight for the Chateau of Beaulieu. Still attended by the porter, who had conceived a respectful admiration for him in consequence of the authoritative tone in which he demanded information from the various railway servants, and who scented a probable munificent tip, Monsieur Etienne Rambert proceeded to the booking office and took a first-class ticket. He spent a few minutes more at the bookstall, where he selected an imposing collection of illustrated papers, and then, his final preparations completed, he turned once more to the porter. "'The Lucon train,' he said. "'Where is it?' And as the man only made a vague gesture and growled something wholly indistinct, he added, "'Lead the way, and I will follow.' It was now just half-past eight, and the station showed all the animation inseparable from the departure of main-line trains, Monsieur Etienne Rambert hurried onwards, and reaching the platform, from which all the lines begin, was stayed by the porter, who was laden with his baggage. "'You want the express, sir?' "'No, the slow train, my man.' The porter showed some surprise, but made no remark. "'Do you like the front or the back of the train?' "'The back, by choice.' First class, isn't it?' Yes, first class. The porter, who had stopped a moment, picked up the heavy valise again. Then there isn't any choice. There are only two first-class carriages on the slow train, and they are both in the middle. They are corridor carriages, I suppose, said Etienne Rambert. Yes, sir. There are hardly any others on the mainline trains, especially first class. In the ever-increasing crowd, Etienne Rambert had some difficulty in following the porter. The Gare d'Orsay has little or none of the attractiveness of the other stations, which cannot fail to have a certain fascination for any imaginative person who thinks of the mystery attaching to all those iron rails reaching out into the distance of countries unknown to him. It is less noisy than the others also, for between Austerlitz and Orsay the traction is entirely electric, and further there is no clearly defined separation between the main and the suburban lines. On the right of the platform was the train which was to take Etienne Rambert beyond Brive to Verrières, the slow train to Lucon, and on the left of the same platform was another train for Juvise and all the small stations in the suburbs of Paris. Very few people were making for the train to Lucon, but a large crowd was pressing into the suburban train. The porter who was piloting Monsieur Etienne Rambert 
set the baggage he was carrying down on the footboard of a first-class carriage. There is no one for the slow train yet, sir. If you like to get in first, you can choose your own compartment. Monsieur Etienne Rambert acted on the suggestion, but he had hardly set foot in the corridor before the guard, also scenting a generous tip, came to offer his services. It really is the 850 you want, sir, was his first inquiry. You are sure you are not making a mistake? No, Etienne Rambert replied. Why? A great many first-class passengers do make a mistake, the man explained, and confused the 850 with the 845 express. As he spoke, the guard took the baggage from the porter who had remained on the platform, and the porter, after being generously remunerated for his trouble by Monsieur Rambert, hurried away to look for other travelers. The 845 is the express, isn't it? Monsieur Rambert inquired. Yes, the guard answered. It runs right through without stopping at all the small stations, as this train does. It goes in front of this one and gets to Lucon three hours earlier. There it is on the side there, and he pointed through the window on the door on the far side to another train on the next rails, in which a number of travelers were already taking their seats. If you prefer to go by that one, sir, he went on, there is still time for you to change. You are entitled to take your choice, since you have a first-class ticket. But Etienne Rambert, after a moment's consideration, declined the suggestion. No, I would rather go by the slow train. If I take the express, I should have to get out at Brive, and then I should be twelve or thirteen miles from Saint-Jouaret, which is my destination. Whereas the slow train stops at Verrières, where, by the way, I have already telegraphed to say I will arrive tomorrow morning. He walked a little way along the corridor, assuring himself that the various compartments were still quite empty, and then turned to the guard. Look here, my man, he said. I am awfully tired, and I mean to get some sleep tonight. Consequently, I should like to be alone. Now where shall I be most quiet and undisturbed? The man understood. Monsieur Etienne Rambert's inquiry about the place where he would be most quiet was an implicit promise of a handsome tip, if nobody did disturb him. If you like to settle yourself here, sir, the man answered, you can draw down the blinds at once, and I dare say I shall be able to find room for any other passengers somewhere else. Good, said Monsieur Rambert, moving toward the compartment indicated. I will smoke a cigar until the train starts and immediately afterwards I will settle down to sleep. By the way, my man, since you seem so obliging, I wish you would undertake to call me tomorrow morning in time for me to get out at Verrières. I am desperately sleepy, and I am quite capable of not waking up. The guard touched his cap. You can be perfectly easy, sir, and sleep without the least anxiety. I won't fail. Very well. When his baggage had been stowed away, and his rug spread out to make the seat more comfortable still, Monsieur Etienne Rambert repeated his appeal, for he was an old traveler and knew that it does not do to rely too much upon the promises of chance attendance. I can rely upon you, can't I? I may sleep as sound as I like, and you will wake me at Verrières. And the more to assure himself that the guard would execute his orders, he slipped a franc into his hand. When he was left alone, Monsieur Rambert continued his preparations for the night. He carefully drew down the blinds over the door and over the windows of the compartment that gave on to the corridor, 
and also lowered the shade over the electric light. And then, in order to enjoy the last puff of his cigar in peace, he opened the window over the other door and leaned his elbows on it, watching the final preparations being made by the travelers by the express on the other side. The departure of a train is always a picturesque sight, and Monsieur Rambert leaned forward inquisitively to note how the passengers had installed themselves in the two compartments which he could see from his coin of vantage. There were not many people in the train. As a matter of fact, the Brive and Lucon line is not much used at this time of year. If the number of passengers in the express were any criterion, Etienne Rambert might reasonably expect that he would be the only one in the slow train. But there was not much time for observations and reflections of this kind. On the platform for the express, which he got a glimpse of through the compartments, people were hurrying up their farewells. The passengers had got into their carriages, and the friends who had come to see them off were standing alone upon the platform. There was the sound of safety locks being fastened by porters, and the noise of trolleys being wheeled along bearing articles for sale. Pillows, rugs, sweets, papers. Then came the whistle of the guard, the shriller scream from the electric engine, and then, slowly at first, but steadily more rapidly, as the engine got up speed, the express moved along the platform and plunged into the tunnel on the way to Austerlitz. Meanwhile, the guard of the slow train was doing wonders. Shamelessly resolved to assure perfect quiet to his passenger, he managed without unduly compromising himself, but yet without leaving any doubt about it in any mind, to insinuate discreetly that Monsieur Rambert's carriage was reserved, so that the gentleman might count upon an entirely undisturbed night. A few minutes after the express had gone, the slow train drew out in its turn and disappeared into the darkness of the underground tunnel. At the Chateau of Beaulieu, young Charles Rambert was just finishing dressing when a gentle tap sounded on the door of his room. "'It is a quarter to five, Charles. Get up at once.' "'I am already awake, Therese,' Charles Rambert answered with some pride. "'I shall be ready in two minutes.' "'What? Up already?' the girl exclaimed from the other side of the door. "'Marvelous! I congratulate you. I'm ready, too. I will wait for you in the dining-room. Come down as soon as you are dressed.' "'All right,' the young man answered. He wasted no time over his toilet, the more so because it was none too warm in his room, for at this early hour it was still quite dark, and, then taking his light in one hand, he opened his door carefully so as to make no noise, tiptoed along the landing, and went down the staircase to join Therese in the dining-room. The girl was an accomplished housekeeper already, and, while waiting for the young fellow, she had got a scratch meal together. "'Let us have breakfast quickly,' she suggested. "'It isn't snowing this morning, and if you like, we might walk to the station. We have plenty of time, and it will do us good to have a walk.' "'It will warm us up, anyhow,' Charles Rambert replied. He was only half awake.' but he sat beside Therese and did justice to the preparations she had made. "'Do you know that it is very wonderful of you to get up so punctually?' Madame de Langrune's granddaughter remarked. "'How did you manage it? Last night you were afraid you would sleep on as usual.' "'It is not much trouble for me to wake up,' Charles Rambert answered. "'I hardly closed an eye all night.' "'But I promised to come and knock at your door myself, so you might have slept without any anxiety.' That's so, but to tell you the truth, Therese, 
I was regularly upset and excited by the thought of Papa arriving this morning. They had both finished breakfast, and Therese got up. Shall we start? she added. Yes. Therese opened the hall door, and the two young people went down the flight of stairs leading to the garden. The girl had thrown a big cloak over her shoulders, and she inhaled the pure morning air with keen delight. I love going out in the early morning, she declared. Well, I don't like it at all, Charles Rambert confessed, with characteristic candor. Good Lord, how cold it is, and it's still pitch dark. Surely you're not going to be frightened, said Therese teasingly. Charles Rambert made an irritable movement of vexation and surprise. Frightened? What do you take me for, Therese? If I don't like going out in the early morning, it's really only because it's cold. She laughed at him while they were crossing the lawn toward the outbuildings, through which she meant to get out on the high road. As they passed the stables, they came across a groom who was leisurely getting an old brougham out of the coach house. Don't hurry, Jean, Therese called out as she greeted him. We are going to walk to the station, and the only important thing is that you should be there to bring us back. The man touched his cap, and the two young people passed through the park gate and found themselves on the high road. It was still very dark with just a wan reflection in the distance of the sky vaguely outlining some cloud shapes to the eastward to give some promise of the day. There was no sound to break the silence of the fields, and as they walked briskly along, Charles and Therese could hear their footsteps ringing on the hard surface of the frozen ground. "'It must please you awfully to be going to meet your father,' said Madame de Langrune's granddaughter, half-questioningly. "'It is a long time since you have seen him, isn't it?' Three years, Charles Rambert answered, and then just for a few minutes. He is coming home from America now, and before that he traveled in Spain for a long time. He was traveling the whole time you were a child, wasn't he? Yes, always, either in Colombia, looking after his rubber plantations there, or in Spain, where he has a good deal of property, too. When he was in Paris, he used to come to the school and ask for me, and I saw him in the parlor for a quarter of an hour. And your mother? Oh, Mamma was different. You know, Therese, I spent all the childhood that I can remember at the school. I liked the masters and had good chums, and was very happy there. And if the truth must be told, I looked forward with anything but pleasure to the holidays, when I had to go to my parents' house. I always felt a stranger with them. My real home was the schoolroom, where I had my desk and all my own interests. And then, you know... When one is little, one doesn't understand things much. I didn't feel having hardly any family very much. But you loved your mother very much? Therese answered the question quite anxiously, and it was patent that she would have thought it dreadful if her companion had not had a real affection for his mother. Oh, yes, I loved her, Charles Rambert answered, but I hardly knew her either. And as Therese showed her surprise, he went on, telling her something of the secret of his lonely childhood. You see, Therese, now that I am a man, I guess lots of things that I could not have had even a suspicion of then. My father and mother did not get on well together. They were what you call an ill-assorted couple. They were both very good, but their characters did not harmonize. When I was little, I always saw Mama silent and sad, and Papa active and on the go, and bright and talking at the top of his voice. I half believe he frightened Mama. 
and then my father was constantly away, whereas Mama hardly ever went out. When a servant took me to the house on Thursdays, I was taken up to say good morning to her, and I invariably found her lying on a sofa in her room, with the blinds down and almost dark. She just touched me with her lips, and asked me one or two questions, and then I was taken away again because I tired her. Was she ill then? Mama has always been ill. I suppose you know, Therese, that three months ago, stay, it was just when I had my degree and went to Germany. She was sent to an asylum. I believe my father had wanted her to agree to undergo careful treatment of the kind long before, but she would not. Therese was silent for a few minutes. You have not been very happy, she said presently. Oh, it was only after I grew up that I felt unhappy. When I was a little chap, I never thought of how sad it is to have no real father or mother. The last four or five years it has hurt me, but when he came to see me once at school, Papa told me he would take me with him as soon as I had taken my degree and grown up. Last October, after my examination, he wrote and told me to be patient a little longer, that he was hurrying on with the winding up of his business and was coming back to France. That gave me a hope which has brightened these last few months, and will also make you understand why I am so pleased this morning at my father's coming. It seems to me that a new life is going to begin. Day was breaking now, a dirty December day with the light filtering through heavy gray clouds that drifted along the ground, hid the horizon, clung to the low hills, and then suddenly dispersed in long wisps driven by a keen breeze that got up in gusts and drove clouds of dust along the hard frozen ground. I have not been very happy either, said Therese, for I lost my father when I was tiny. I don't even remember him, and Mama must be dead as well. The ambiguous turning of the child's phrase caught Charles Rambert's interested attention. What does that mean, Therese? Don't you know if your mother is dead? Yes, oh yes, my grandmama says so. But whenever I ask for particulars, Grandmama always changes the subject. I will echo what you said just now. When you are little, you don't know anything, and are not surprised at anything. For a long time, I took no notice of her sudden reticence. But now I sometimes wonder if something is not being kept back from me, whether it is really true that Mama is no more in this world. Talking like this, Therese and Charles had walked at a good pace, and now they came to the few houses built around Verrier Station. One by one, bedroom windows and doors were being opened. Peasants were making their way to the sheds to lead their cattle to the pastures. We are very early, Therese remarked, pointing to the station clock. Your father's train is due at 6.55, and it is only 6.40 now. We still have a quarter of an hour to wait, and more, if the train is not punctual. They went into the little station, and Charles Rambert, thankful for some shelter from the cold, stamped his feet, making a sudden uproar in the empty waiting room. A porter appeared. Who the deuce is kicking up all this row? He began angrily, and then seeing Therese, broke off short. Ah, Mademoiselle Therese, he said, with a familiar yet perfectly respectful cordiality that marks country folk. Up already? Have you come to meet somebody, or are you going away? As he spoke, the porter turned a curious eye upon Charles Rambert, whose arrival had caused quite a sensation two days before in this little spot, where, with but a few exceptions, none but people belonging to the neighborhood ever come by train. 
No, I am not going away, Therese replied. I have accompanied Monsieur Rambert, who has come to meet his father. Aha! To meet your papa, sir? Is he coming from far? From Paris, Charles Rambert answered. Is the train signaled yet? The man drew out a watch like a turnip and looked at the time. It won't be here for quite another twenty minutes. The work on the tunnel makes it necessary to be careful, and it's always late now. But you will hear when the bell rings. That will be when the train is coming over the level crossing. It will run into the station three minutes after that. Well, mademoiselle, I must get on with my work. And the man left them. Therese turned to Charles Rambert. Shall we go to the platform? Then we shall see the train come in. So they left the waiting room and began to walk up and down the whole length of the platform. Therese watched the jerky movements of the hands of the clock and smiled at her companion. Five minutes more and your father will be here. Four minutes more. Ah, there it is. And she pointed to a slope in the distance where a slight trail of smoke rose white against the blue of the sky, now clear of cloud. Can't you see it? That is steam from the engine coming out of the tunnel. Ere she finished speaking, the quivering whir of the bell echoed through the empty station. Ah, said Charles Rambert, at last. The two porters who, with the station master, constituted the entire railway staff at Verrières, came bustling along the platform, and while the bell continued its monotonous whirring sound, pulled forward trucks in readiness for any possible luggage. Puffing portentously, the engine slackened speed, and the heavy train slowed down and finally stopped, bringing a noisy atmosphere of life into the station at Verrières that but a moment ago was so still. The first-class carriages had stopped immediately in front of Charles and Therese, and on the footboard Etienne Rambert stood, a tall, elderly man of distinguished appearance, proud bearing, and energetic attitude, with extraordinarily keen eyes and an unusually high and intelligent forehead. Seeing Therese and Charles, he seized his baggage and in a twinkling had sprung onto the platform. He dropped his valise, tossed his bundle of rugs into a seat, and gripped Charles by the two shoulders. "'My boy!' he exclaimed. "'My dear boy!' Although he had hitherto shown so little affection for his child, it was obvious that the man was making a great effort to restrain his emotion and was really moved when he now saw him again as a grown young man. Not on his part did Charles Rambert remain unmoved, as if the sudden grip of this almost stranger, who yet was his father, had awakened a world of memories within him, he turned very pale and his voice faltered as he replied, Papa, dear Papa, I am so glad to see you. Therese had drawn tactfully aside. Monsieur Rambert still held his son by the shoulders and stepped back a pace, the better to consider him. Why, you are a man! How you have altered, my boy! You are just what I hoped you would be, tall and strong. Ah, you are my son, all right, and you are quite well, hey? Yet you look tired. I did not sleep well, Charles explained with a smile. I was afraid I should not wake up. Turning his head, Monsieur Rambert saw Therese and held out his hand. "'How do you do, my little Therese?' he exclaimed. "'You have altered, too, since I saw you last. I left a little chit of a child, and now I behold a grown-up young lady. Well, I must be off at once to pay my respects to my dear old friend, your grandmother. All well to Chateau, eh?' Therese shook hands warmly with Monsieur Rambert and thanked him prettily. "'Grandmama is very well.' 
She told me to tell you to excuse her if she did not come to meet you, but her doctor says she must not get up very early. Of course your grandmamma's excused, my dear. Besides, I have to thank her for her kindness to Charles, and for the hospitality she is going to extend to me for a few days. Meanwhile, the train had gone on again, and now a porter came up to Monsieur Rambert. Will you take your luggage with you, sir? Recalled to material things, Etienne Rambert contemplated his trunk, which the porters had taken out of the luggage van. Good Lord, he began, but Therese interrupted him. Grandmama said she would send for your heavy luggage during the morning, and that you could take your valise and any small parcels with us in the brome. What's that? Your grandmama has taken the trouble to send her carriage? It's a long way to Beaulieu, you know, Therese replied. Ask Charles if it isn't. We came on foot, and the walk would be too tiring for you after a whole night in the train. The three had reached the station yard, and Therese stopped in surprise. Why, how's that? she exclaimed. The carriage is not here, and yet Jean was beginning to get it ready when we left the chateau. Monsieur Etienne Rambert was resting one hand on his son's shoulder, and contemplating him with an affectionate, all-embracing survey every now and then. He smiled at Therese. He may have been delayed, dear. I tell you what we will do. Since your grandmamma is going to send for my luggage, there is no need for me to take my valise. We can leave everything in the cloakroom and start for the chateau on foot. If my memory serves me right, and it is a very good memory, there is only one road, so we shall meet Jean and can get into the carriage on the way. A few minutes later, all three set out on the road to Beaulieu. Monsieur Rambert walked between the two young people. He had gallantly offered his arm to Therese, who was not a little proud of the attention, which proved to her mind that she was now regarded as a grown-up young lady. On the other side of his father, Charles made answer to the incessant questions put to him. Monsieur Etienne Rambert enjoyed the walk in the quiet morning through the peaceful countryside. With a tender half-melancholy, he recognized every turn in the road, every bit of scenery. Just fancy my coming back here at sixty years of age, with a great son of eighteen, he said with a laugh, and I remember, as if it were yesterday, the good times I have had at the Chateau of Beaulieu. Madame de Langrune and I will have plenty of memories to talk over. Gad, it must be quite forty years since I came this way, and yet I remember every bit of it. Say, Therese, isn't it the fact that we shall see the front of the chateau directly we have passed this little copse? Quite true, the girl answered with a laugh. You know the country very well, sir. Yes, said Etienne Rambert. When one gets to my age, little Therese, one always does remember the happy days of one's youth. One remembers recent events much less distinctly. Most likely that means, my dear, that the human heart declines to grow old and refuses to preserve any but pictures of childhood. For a few minutes, Monsieur Rambert remained silent, as if absorbed in somewhat melancholy reflections. But he soon recovered himself and shook off the tender sadness evoked in his mind by memories of the past. Why, the park enclosure has been altered, he exclaimed. Here is a wall which used not to be here. There was only a hedge. Therese laughed. I never knew the hedge, she said. I have always seen the wall. Must we go on to the main gate, Monsieur Rambert asked? or has your grandmamma had another gate made? We are going in by the outbuildings, the girl answered. Then we shall hear why Jean did not come to meet us. 
she opened the little door half hidden among the moss and ivy that clothed the wall surrounding the park, and making Monsieur Rambert and Charles pass in before her, cried, But Jean has gone with the brome, for the horses are not in the stable. How was it we did not meet him? Then she laughed. Poor Jean! He is so muddle-headed. I would not mind betting that he went to meet us at Saint-Joiret, as he does every morning to bring me home from church. The little company, Etienne Rambert, Therese, and Charles, were now approaching the chateau. Passing beneath Madame de Langrune's windows, Therese called merrily up to them. Here we are, Grandmama. There was no reply. But at the window of an adjoining room appeared the figure of the steward, Dolon, making a gesture as if asking for silence. Therese, in advance of her guests, had proceeded but a few yards when Madame de Langrune's old servant rushed down the stone flight of steps in front of the chateau towards Monsieur Rambert. Dolon seemed distraught. Usually so respectful and so deferential in manner, he now seized Monsieur Rambert by the arm, and imperiously waving Therese and Charles away, drew him aside. "'It was awful, sir,' he exclaimed. "'Horrible! A fearful thing has happened. We have just found Madame la Marquise dead, murdered in her room. End of chapter 2 Recording by Alan Winteroud BoomCoach.blogspot.com